a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Wrong thinkers, new and old, I am glad you're a part of our audience today. Speaking of wrong thinkers, uh, one of my favorite wrong thinkers of all, Eric Peters joins me from epautos.com. Eric, how are you doing today? Well, I'm good, and I thought we could start with a, a wrong thinkful observation. Okay, what's that? Well, uh, I, I was scanning the news feeds this morning, as I usually do, getting ready for the day, and I saw a picture of our president-select wearing his facial burqa. Now, I kind of recall him getting the holy jab back in January or in December, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's had the vaccine. Now, doesn't that beg the question? So if he's had the vaccine, aren't vaccines supposed to immunize you? Mm. I would assume so most if he's people... Immune, yeah. If he's immune, why is he continuing to wear, wear the facial burqa? And I think the reason for that is, uh, to emphasize the point that we talk about often, it's about theater. It's about submission kabuki. Uh, it's got nothing to do with, with health. If you've, if you've had what they claim is the cure for the virus, you should no longer have to wear the diaper. And yet, he's wearing it, and of course... Uh, CDC, which has practically become the Vatican in this country, and people are obeying it with with uh, with, with all the the fervor of fanatical religious people, says that even if you've been vaccinated, you must continue to wear your holy face burqa. The good news is the the revolution has commenced. As you know, <laughs> Texas has rescinded its diaper mandate. Uh, Wyoming has done so. Um, uh, South Dakota never had one, and I think there's another state that's on the verge of or has already. Uh, dis- disposed of its face diaper mandate. That's it. Yep. So yeah, my by my latest count, seventeen states right now have done away with the mask mandates altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, my home state of Utah, I don't know why, but they decided we're going to hang on to it for one more month just in case. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, when when it was clear that things are starting to shift, the cases are way 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 down. I'm starting to see people get rid of the masks. Although I was out and about this last weekend, and Eric, I, I was surprised how mm-hmm. many people, I don't know, habit maybe, but there was still probably 98% compliance on the part of most of the people I encountered, shopping, going to a restaurant, etc. Yeah, it's the same here, and I think it's because, you know how I will uh, make, make a joke about the cases, the cases, we've talked about that before. Now, I think what they're doing, and I don't watch TV, and I don't listen to the the quote-unquote news anymore for just this reason because it's insufferable but i think that they're peddling the variants the variants and that's what they're using to terrify people and to cajole them and coerce them into continuing to pay obeisance to this sick religion that uh has turned america into a kind of bizarre gulag uh of hypochondria tell me about your experience that you had uh recently when, when you were at the grocery store yeah, um, I was at the store the other day, and for the past several weeks, I've not seen uh, any other people who have dared to show their face because I think they're watching CNN and hearing about the variants, the variants. At any rate, I was walking through the aisles, and I spied another face. And as is my practice these days, um, I try to, uh, I try to uh, show some um, common cause and, and affirm 
other people when they do what I do. And so I walked up to the guy and I said, it's really great to see your face. Now, of course, he didn't know who I was. So initially he was a little bit puzzled by that, but then he immediately got it and he stuck out his hand and I shook his hand. I engaged in what wow. used to be a common act of civility, the thing that, that people used to normally do before hypochondria became institutionalized as the new abnormal. And it felt so good. And he also did something that practically made me wet my pants, even though I'm usually pretty continent. He went, bah! <laughs> and we laughed at, about, at, the, at the sheep all around us. I'm curious, what was the reaction of the people around you? They didn't look because we're both big guys, and okay. I think uh, I think most of these most of these people are. I mean, they're obviously they're so absolutely terrified of either the virus or social pressure. You know, they don't want to be the ones that stand out. That they just don't know how to deal with people who aren't sheep. Yeah, there's I I think there's something other than health that's at play often when people get angry and they get up in someone's face. I think it's more a matter of uh, you're making me uncomfortable because you're showing that this can be resisted. And I don't, yeah, want, to, I don't want to believe right. that. That's right. I think there's an element of shame to it. Uh, I've commented with you before, I think, about the duality of both the masochistic and the sadistic aspect of this. The masochistic aspect, of course, is the wearing of the ridiculous holy rag and the performance of all these bizarre rituals, the standing six feet apart, the, the obsessive washing of the hands and all of that stuff. Um, which is a degrading thing to, to do, to subject yourself to that. And you, you probably makes you feel pretty awful. But then when you see somebody else not doing it, some people who have corroded souls, in my opinion, get angry when they see somebody else who isn't going to, going to truckle and bow to that stuff. And their anger results in their desire to see that person punished. That's the sadistic aspect of it. And they're the ones who will accost somebody that they think is in a weaker position than they are, I've had women tell me that they get harassed. Old people tell me that they get harassed. I don't get harassed because I'm big enough to present a threat to most of these people. And so far, I've not had anybody say so much as a cross word to me, which is probably good for their sake. And I'm not a violent guy, but I won't put up with this stuff. So where do you see this going? I mean, are, are we at a tipping point where, where some sanity will start to return? Or is this going to play out for a bit longer, in your opinion? Well, there's so many variables here. You know, if they, if they kick up the fear porn again, and, and, and I've noticed, and you may have noticed too, this business of the variants, the variants, uh, they may succeed in doubling down on the hypochondria and getting people uh, even more terrified than they already have been. But my sense of things is that a lot of people all over the country have had their fill, and that even includes politicians who've stuck their fingers up in the breeze and found that people are having enough, and it's, it's now potentially something that's going to cost them political support and maybe their job. Abbott in Texas is a good example of that. Initially, he was a, a big diaper pusher, and he backed down on that, and uh, he's also uh, uh, jousting with Biden over the opening of the southern border and the flooding of the country with people who, by the way, aren't being tested for the Rona. You know, so, so here we go again about the, the great concern with the virus, the virus, except when it comes to illegal aliens coming across the border. So I don't know how it's all going to play out. If we get to a point where there are a number of states um, and areas of the country where people simply refuse to play along with this. Um, the historic analogy, analogy may be what happened in Poland during the, the Solidarity era uh, and then ultimately in the Soviet Union when the people finally just couldn't take it anymore and said enough and the government lost legitimacy. And even if the government stamps its feet and tries to impose this stuff, at a certain point if there's a critical mass of people who simply won't take it anymore, 
then they won't take it anymore. And I'm hoping that that's what happens. I'm with you on that. And, and every time I feel encouraged, like, all right, people are starting to get it. Then I venture out and I realize, okay, but there's still a lot of people that, that, for whatever reason, I don't know what the human nature thing is that makes you want to cling to fear, but for some mm-hmm. reason people, I, I don't know, they developed a taste for it or something. Well, if you read in psychological literature about something called fear-based trauma, you begin to understand it. If you beat people down, you, you, uh, you terrify them, and you tell them that if you do this, it will all be okay, they get habituated to it. It becomes normalized. Uh, it's kind of like uh, you know, the, the, the uh, abused wife syndrome. She gets used to it. That's her way of life, the fact that her spouse beats her up, and she considers that normal, and she'll actually defend the, the, the battering spouse when the cops show up and say, no, don't take my man away. And basically that's, I think, what we're dealing with here with the face burkas. Well, I'm encouraged because uh, even friends who uh, have been uh, um, very uh, supportive of, of mask uh, mandates are starting to rethink it and, and starting to rejoice in the fact that, hey, I don't feel like I need to wear it everywhere. And I, it's, it's not a matter of, yeah, finally we've won them over. It's a matter of, thank goodness, people are starting to right. see through the facade. Well, I hope so. You know, the evidence is literally before their very eyes. I, I've, I've been appalled for, for many months that people haven't looked around and, and noticed, you know what, I'm not seeing bodies stacking up like cordwood, and uh, the people that I know who aren't 95 years old are still alive. Uh, you know, it's, it's not killing everybody left and right. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I know people who had it, yep, they didn't feel good for a few days, and they were fine. Most of us are okay. This, this, this overreaction and this, this hysteria that's been pushed is just that. It's hysteria, and it's over the top, and, and the cost of this hysteria is incalculable. When you think about all of the damage that's been done, not just economically, but psychologically to the people of this country. We're, we're coming up on our break here in about 30 seconds, but uh, when we jump back in in the other segment, I want to pick your brain a little bit about whether there will ever be accountability for the people in authority who ordered these lockdowns, who prosecuted people for uh, being out of their homes, for not wearing masks and so forth. Um, is that fair game? Can we talk about that? Oh, as, as, as uh, Mr. Burns used to say, excellent, let's do it. Okay. We're talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. I encourage you to check out his website. You'll find lots of great discussion of freedom-related issues as well as a lot of information on automotive-related issues. We may touch on that as well. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, as we went to break, I told you I want to pick your brain about the possibility Mm -hmm. of accountability for the people who enforced and who kept pressing these lockdown mandates, mask mandates, etc. Do you see a day where they they will have a reckoning? I mean, Cuomo, I thought, was going to face it over the nursing home deaths, but now it's kind of turned into a hashtag me too situation. I think he may skate on the COVID stuff only to, you know, be sacrificed for his, uh, you know, Russian hands and Roman fingers. Well, I don't think that's accidental. I think that that's deliberate. I think they've conjured this sex scandal, which they knew about 
uh, for many months. This, this is not news to anybody who's been following the story. Uh, in order to get people's minds off the story of Cuomo's handling of the situation in New York, of his uh, forcibly ordering these care homes to accept people who had this uh, this illness and uh, thereby cause the deaths of many thousands of, of fragile elderly people who would probably still be alive today. Now, you use the word possibility. I think we need to use the word necessity, and uh, it's the same necessity that drove the war crimes tribunals at Nuremberg after World War II. It wasn't enough uh, just to forget about it. The war's over. Uh, these people have to be brought forward and held accountable for what they did, which was deliberate, calculated, and vicious, and continues to be so. And if they are not held accountable, then uh, a grievous injustice has been done um, to the American people. So I'm hoping that at some point people are going to say, wait a minute, these people destroyed the lives, the businesses, uh, and literally ended the lives of many Americans. And that kind of thing is not acceptable, and it has to be corrected, and it has to be done so in a judicial manner, in my opinion. No, I, I would agree. I, I know people are like, no, no, that sounds a lot like you're looking for vengeance, but it's no, I want accountability. And I want to make sure that they don't feel like what they've got free license to do it again when another crisis arises, which you know it that's, will that's eventually. It's deterrence. Why do we prosecute people who steal, uh, commit um, uh, murder, and so on? It's not about vengeance. It, it's about accountability, and it's also more broadly about letting other people know that if you do this, there are going to be consequences for it if you are caught doing it. That's the, that's the important point here. I want to shift gears here for a moment, Eric, and talk about an article you published yesterday. Why mm -hmm. just sell you a car when they can sell you? Yeah. This yeah. kind, of, kind of bent my mind because it, it approached uh, you know how, how cars are marketed and what the car companies are doing from an angle I really hadn't considered. Set the stage for us and tell us a little bit about this article. Yeah, as we talked about, I think, before, car companies are increasingly... Uh, diversifying their business and looking at other ways to generate money rather than selling you a car. Uh, they they are, are styling themselves um, purveyors of transportation as a service, for example, or mobility. Those are some of the words they use. And some of the major car companies, including General Motors now, are thinking about getting into the insurance business and selling you insurance. And uh, the genius of that is that, you know, you, what, what you pay isn't a one-time deal. It's on and on, and it's adjustable. You know, when you go to buy a car, you uh, sit down at the table, and you agree on the price that you're going to pay for the car, what your interest rate's going to be, how many months you're going to pay, and that's it. And once the paperwork is signed, you know that that's what you're, you're going to be paying every month for however long the, the duration of the loan lasts. But with insurance, as you and I know, what you pay uh, for your policy this six months might be very different next six months if you get a ticket, let's say. And what these car companies want to do is make it possible to dun you in real time through the telematics, the, uh, the ability of the car to send and receive data about what you're doing behind the wheel. In other words, if you're speeding, uh, if you accelerate what they call too aggressively or, or swerve or anything else that they can use as a pretext for kicking up your rates, that's what they want to do. Some insurance companies are already doing this uh, on a voluntary basis, trying to tell you you're going to get a reduced rate if you let them plug in a little device right. underneath your dashboard that does yeah. that. And I foresee them trying to make this mandatory. And if they succeed in doing this, driving is going to become intolerably awful. And most people are going to say, you know what, I'm done. I don't even want to deal with the car anymore, which I think is part of what they want, ironically enough. 
Well, that's going to take a lot of the fun out of driving. Not that I, you know, go around sure. breaking laws or accelerating aggressively, but I just, I kind of like to be able to chart my own course. I don't want a machine, well, let, you know, forcing me to we all know, toe the line. We all know, we all know that many of these laws uh, are over the top. We all speed, don't we? You know, it's, the term has a negative connotation, but the fact is all of us, every time we get behind the wheel, we'll drive somewhat faster than whatever the speed limit is because the speed limits are not realistic. They're, they're posted well below what the normal rate of traffic is, and they're done that way on purpose because it helps the cops to generate money through tickets and the insurance companies. Everybody knows this. There's nothing inherently unsafe about making, for example, a right on red, even if the sign says you can't, provided you can see and you're competent to do it. Uh, so the, the whole point I'm trying to make here is that the record of your filing claims or having claims filed against you, in other words, have you had accidents, are you causing accidents, that's legitimate. That shows that you're probably not a very good driver. On the other hand, if you've got 20 or 30 years of accident-free driving and you've never had a claim filed against you but you got a couple of speeding tickets, so what? It, it tells me you're a good driver who got nailed over some technical foul traffic statutes that have absolutely nothing to do with whether you're a good driver or not. Yep. Well, the, you you and I have talked a lot about the insurance mafia, and I don't disagree with your characterization of it's it's like the mafia. It is the mafia. What does the mafia do? The mafia doesn't say, hey, would you like our protection? It's this much per month. What they do is they walk in and say, eh, it'd be a shame if your business burned down, you know, and they right. extort money from you. You have to pay them. Well, what does the insurance company do? I don't have a problem with insurance as such if they offer you that service and say, look, you know, if you're interested in reducing your potential liability and you want to pay us for that service, here, here's what we charge. Instead, they use the government to force you to buy their product, which ends up meaning that we all pay more. And it's not just car insurance, it's health insurance, every other form of insurance that's been made mandatory because when you can't say no, they tend to charge you more for it. Oh, absolutely. And who wouldn't? Right? I mean, well, I mean, an evil person would. I mean, I find it a despicable practice, you know, to not offer your service or your product. And hey, if people want to buy it, that's great. That's America. That's the free exchange of goods and services. But there's something really creepy when you think about it uh, about using the government to make people buy whatever you're selling. Any other uh, automotive news? We're down to about two minutes here before we got to wrap things up. But uh, anything in the world of automobiles that uh, grabs you this week? Yeah, I don't know if you've been following this story, but um, several automakers have publicly announced that they're committing to full electrification. In other words, that's all they're going to sell are electric cars, Jaguar, Land Rover being the most recent, I think by 2025, and Ford, and that's a big one. You know, Ford is a major car company. Jaguar, Land Rover is a specialty car company, uh, are going all electric. And this bodes very, very poorly, very ill for the future of the car business and also for the car buying public, given the fact that, most people can't afford an electric car. For most people, an electric car is impractical. So what is this going to imply when the only kinds of cars that you can buy are these very impractical and very expensive electric cars? It surprises me, too, that it's it's kind of, the, I mean, you know, uh, Land Rover and Jaguar, I look at those as kind of luxury brands. You <laughs> would think that, uh, I don't know, people who could afford a premium vehicle would be able to afford that internal combustion engine. Well, they can, and they do, and uh, the companies are just being expedient. They're uh, essentially thinking, and they're right, that with Biden in office, that this Green New Deal stuff is going to be imposed, and part of the Green New Deal uh, will be laws that effectively make it impossible to sell anything other than an electric car. So they're trying to be, be ahead of the curve and pretend that they're doing it in response to market demands when, in fact, they're doing it in response to government pressure.
All right, we're down to just about uh, 30 seconds left here. Um, talk about your website, Eric. Where can people find it? What can they expect to find? Well, sure. It's epautos.com, and they can expect to find a whole gamut of stuff, ranging from articles about new cars, classic cars, motorcycles, to the issues that you and I like to talk about, uh, political and philosophical topics. And, um, you know, it's very eclectic, and we've got a very interesting group of people who are there who regularly comment. And as you and I have talked about before, I learn something from them as much as they may learn something from me. And I commend anybody uh, who is interested in lively, intelligent discussion to check out the comments section on the site. Here, here, Eric, great to catch up with you as always. We'll talk again next week. Sounds great, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to mention our sponsors. I'm very thankful to, to have uh, businesses and individuals and, and patrons who uh, will step up and uh, throw a few shekels this way uh, to keep this program going. And and I will tell you, every every dime that you uh, donate to that end is used for the purpose of keeping my attention focused on finding and disseminating the best, most accurate content that I can find. I'm not going to guarantee it's all 100% written in stone. It's, you know, it's you have to believe it. Nope, that's not the requirement. But I do appreciate those who make this show possible. They include Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, Monticello College, Pure Light, and also HSL Ammo. And you're going to be hearing more about all of these a little bit later on in the program. So I want to shift gears onto a couple of different topics that uh, I know we're hearing more and more about these days, things like blockchain and Bitcoin. And while I feel like I know more than I did, say, a few years ago, I'm still, I'm a neophyte. I, there's a lot about it I just don't get. That's where I'm very grateful for people like my friend Rob Nielsen, who took the time to spell out the basics of blockchains and bitcoins. It's a marvelous piece that was just published on everythingvoluntary.com. And I'm going to, again, encourage you, if you haven't already subscribed for their daily email, it would be worth your while. Really some fascinating stuff. I love the fact that the majority of their articles really come in a, in a nice, easy-to-digest, uh, succinct form that you can, you can quickly put away a lot of information, and they really have some interesting insights. Rob's uh, latest article here is one of the best I've read within recent memory. So let's delve into it, shall we? Blockchains and Bitcoins. Rob Nielsen writes, People have been making records as long as they've been writing. Money serves as a unit of account, which makes the consistent tracking of finances and business interests possible. The assets, liabilities, income, expenses, and equity of businesses and banks have been tracked in books and files known as ledgers for centuries. Now, the word ledger comes from the same ancient roots as the word lay, as in something you would lay down or put and keep in place. So when books were scarce, it was common to have a copy of important books like scriptures kept in one place where they could be located and accessed easily. The important accounting books of a business inherited this word. As information technology improved, he writes, the original books were replaced with computer files containing the same kinds of information. By the way, there are some really nice, helpful illustrations within this article as well. And you'll find it linked in the show notes 
at thebrianhydeshow.com. Rob Nielsen writes, even with the move to digital ledgers, it was important to only have one official version so that everything could be controlled properly and tracked accurately. Now here he talks about trust problems. What happens if someone you don't trust has access to your important records? Well, they could destroy or change or replace them. They could take the documents and make you pay to get them back. Having only one copy of a record may seem like a good way to keep things private, but it also means that there's only one copy that a bad actor would need to get access to. It also requires a lot of trust in the few people that control authorized access to it. So to avoid problems like these, you could choose a system that's decentralized rather than centralized. Centralized systems, he writes, rely on a model of central decision-making and authority. Centralized systems are susceptible to hostile takeover, catastrophic failure, and systemic collapse. Decentralized systems distribute responsibility and authority away from a single source or location. He says decentralized systems cannot be controlled or shut down as easily. They're less likely to fail since each part of the system can operate independent of a central authority. So if any part of the system fails or becomes unavailable, the other parts continue operating anyway. In computer terms, this decentralization is known as peer-to-peer technology. In a centralized model, there are server systems that control access and client systems that access server system resources based on rules set and enforced by the server systems. In a peer-to-peer model, The relationship between machines is one of equals that share responsibility and authority. Each peer in this model has control only over its own resources and operates with other peers based on rules enforced by the peers themselves. Any peer not obeying the rules is ignored. But decentralizing a record-keeping system only solves trust problems related to central control. Here's where we get into cryptography and information security. Rob Nielsen writes, another trust problem arises when storing or transmitting sensitive information. Security. Information cannot be stored in containers that are not, uh, information cannot be stored in containers that are not leaky, including and especially perhaps people's minds. So people have used cryptography from the Greek words cryptos, hidden, and graphing to write to protect private information for a very long time. So if a message is encrypted, it can only be unencrypted or understood properly using a key. Simple keys like alphabet sliders simply substitute one character for another. Such systems are considered symmetrical because the same key can be used to encrypt and decrypt the information. Modern cryptography methods make use of computer technology to generate very complex keys to encrypt and decrypt information. Not long after computer systems were interconnected, a new type of asymmetrical encryption came about that used two keys for encoding and decoding information, a public key which can be shared openly with others, and a private key which may never be known to by anyone, uh, known by anyone except the owner. And this new public key cryptography allowed messages to be encrypted by anyone, but only decrypted by the intended recipient. So blockchains are distributed encrypted ledgers slash databases. A participating computer system with a copy of the ledger is known as a node. Such nodes form a peer-to-peer decentralized network. Blockchain nodes share ledger changes in time-stamped batches called blocks, which are chained together to show a complete history of changes. 
Each block of changes is validated by a majority of nodes in a network. Blockchains can be public or private. Now here he points out that blockchain functions as a public blockchain, or Bitcoin rather, functions as a public blockchain network. It was intended to solve trust problems in central banking schemes. The original author of the system published a famous white paper entitled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto. Now, the basic idea is that anyone with your public key, you can think of this as your account number, can reassign control of Bitcoin records they control to you, but only you can reassign control of Bitcoin records you control to others using your private key. You can think of that as your password. It actually has a very nice illustration of this, an example of a Bitcoin wallet key pair with the QR codes that you can be scanned to avoid entering all the keys manually. But to participate in the Bitcoin network, you need a software application called a wallet that uses public-private key pairs to access the Bitcoin network. And these wallet systems can be run on internet servers, desktop computers, mobile devices. Since a wallet contains a copy of your private key, anyone with access to it can make changes to the records assigned to your wallet. For this reason, some people store their keys on a device like a USB drive called a hardware wallet. Or they even print them out on paper called a paper wallet and then put them in a secure location. In any case, if you lose your keys or if the device they're stored on fails or is destroyed... Access to and control of the Bitcoin records they're associated with is lost forever and cannot be retrieved. For this reason, Bitcoin participants are encouraged to make backup copies of their keys. In order to add a new block of transactions to the Bitcoin blockchain, he says the system requires something called proof of work or POW. That work is done by miners, in quotation marks, whose machines are used to generate keys randomly until a solution to a randomly generated encryption problem is solved. Miners who solve such cryptographic hashing problems are awarded control of a small amount of Bitcoin paid as fees by users who need transactions verified. This encourages network participation in verification of transactions. So here's one of the big takeaways. Bitcoin is not property. There are no physical bitcoins to be possessed. Bitcoin is not real money, and neither is any other ledger entry, encrypted, distributed, or otherwise. Bitcoin is a speculative investment in a digital record-keeping system. And here he goes through and lists the different strengths and weaknesses of, of Bitcoin. Strengths include integrity, authenticity, control. Weaknesses include uh, confidentiality, availability, and utility. But from here, he talks about the future of Bitcoin and blockchain and says some see it as a foolproof way to get rich quick or secure their financial future against uncertainty. He says his advice in preparing for the future is not to hope in unusual virtual investments, whether Bitcoin or other, but instead to become as productive, disciplined and wise as you can, as well as to build a good reputation with a community of trustworthy people. He says if you are lazy, unorganized, Foolish and isolated, whatever resources you have access to won't serve you very well. It's an it's a marvelous article, and again, I know that this is a this is a deep topic. There are people who've been, you know, looking into it and studying it for some time who still say, "I don't feel like I understand it." I'm one of those people. But uh, Rob Nielsen has put together an excellent explanation. Check it out. It's posted in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be right back. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. If there's anything that I have developed a really strong appreciation for here in the last mm, few years, maybe even the last couple of decades, it's people who can tell the truth, even truths that I may not necessarily want to hear. Fred Reed happens to be one of those truth tellers. He is, uh, I mean, he's a Vietnam vet. He's a former Marine. He is a former uh, investigative reporter, a brilliant writer who is very much a curmudgeon. You don't have to read a lot of his work to realize, okay, Fred's got some attitude, but he's also extremely well-informed and has the ability to to put difficult, um, very complex issues into relatively easy-to-understand terms. I would say he's simplifying them, but he's really just, he's stripping away a lot of the emotional dressing and saying, look, here's here's what's at stake. So in the last segment, as we were talking about Bitcoin or uh, blockchain technology, I saw an article that Fred had written about uh, about China and where China is going in terms of their new digital yuan, which is now in late stage testing. And this uh, this latest article from Fred is called Dispatches from the New Cold War. I don't share this with you to make you scared or to otherwise, you know, get you feeling like, oh, my gosh, it's all lost. China's taking over. But if you haven't been paying attention, you might have missed some of the different uh, initiatives that China has been working on, some of the ways in which it has been uh, positioning itself um, economically, militarily, geopolitically. It's pretty fascinating stuff. And I thought I would share a few of the excerpts from uh, Fred Reed's report here. He says, recently, I wrote a column on China's digital yuan, now in late-stage testing. Bare-bones explanation, you download a digital wallet app for which you can then send payments to anybody in the world who also has the app. No forms, bureaucracy, or bank account needed. Okay, that's cute, you say. Then, with my phenomenally perceptive, pincher-like grasp of, of the inescapable thought... Uh, the inescapable, rather, he says, I thought it sounds scalable. If you can do it with 30 bucks in yuan for a hat in some store, why not with $50 million in yuan for a shipment of oil from Iran? Sure, with more security and so on, but the same mechanism. And interestingly, such payments would be completely independent of and opaque to Washington and independent of SWIFT. Eek! He says, do you suppose China's thought of this? Well... Fred says, I thought this is mere speculative speculative maundering by some guy in Mexico who's admittedly pig ignorant of international finance. And of course, China itself was saying that the Digiwan had nothing to do with the dollar. Oh no, that was solely for domestic use and for retail sales. Not important. Move on. Nothing to see here. But then he says, there's this story. China is consulting, whatever that means, with Hong Kong, Thailand, and the UAE, over using the Digiwan for international payments. Uh, say what? Thailand and the United Arab Emirates are not particularly domestic to China. And he says, I doubt that Beijing is intensely interested in the real market, retail market of the UAE, which has the aggregate population of a large city bus. Fred Reed says, Methinks China has something in mind, and it don't bode good for sanctions, the petrodollar, and the like. Fascinating development, if, if true. Another subject. 
He says, being fascinated what looks like a shift of the world's technological and economic center of gravity from the West to Asia. He says, I poke about in the web in the manner of an earnest truffle hound to see what the wily Orientals are doing. My results are not too systematic. My distinct impression is that things are happening over there. Ideas popping up on Wednesday and in volume production by Friday afternoon of energy and movement. By contrast, he says, America looks asleep at the wheel, except that it doesn't have a wheel. So here are a few almost random examples. China is ahead of patent, uh, ahead of America, rather, in patent applications for a second year. And then he goes into some different stories. And I'm just going to kind of hit these rapid fire from Business Insider. The Chinese governmental site Global Times says China is moving ahead with a huge robot farming project powered by 5G cellular technology. The agricultural tractor with self-driving mode can also be remotely controlled to carry out multiple intelligent functions. Interesting. Beijing has also successfully powered up its artificial sun nuclear fusion reactor for the first time. That according to the Chinese People's, China's People's Daily, they reported that back on Friday. It's designed to be a clean energy source similar to the real sun. Now, the foregoing is overexcited as neither China nor anyone else has demonstrated controlled fusion, but it does show that the country is in the race. Global Times, which is a mouthpiece of Beijing, says China needs to increase its nuclear warheads to 1,000 because of American hostility. And as far as education, China finds its brightest students with a grueling entrance exam. America dumbs down elite high schools because they don't have enough unqualified minorities. Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia has already been instupidated, and the New York City schools are on the block. The purpose of the schools is to admit students who can't do the work. In the New York Post, there's this. With this year's state math and English exams canceled, a watered-down grading policy enacted, and the tossing of attendance, the key factors for admission to selective schools have been dropped or diminished. And then another headline, America ties with China in the 2019 Math Olympiad. Well, not exactly, says Fred Reed. The 2019 U.S. team is Vincent Huang, Luke Robote, Colin Tang, Edward Wan, Brandon Wang, and Daniel, Daniel Zhu. China, he says, it seems tied with itself. Then the BBC reports China's, China's Chang'e 5 lunar sample return mission safely parachutes into Mongolia. Very sophisticated engineering, and it worked. Now, the U.S. is ahead in space exploration, its perseverance mission on Mars now being a marvel. But the point is the gap ain't what it used to be. And from NIO, there's a Chinese electric vehicle startup. And he actually says, you know, if a car looks like this, I think I want one. Neo is working on a system which, in which gas stations remove a depleted battery and replace it with a charged one, thus eliminating the problem of a long charging time. Will it fly? I don't know. But he says the folks over there are scurrying. China, Japan, and South Korea, for example, are rapidly advancing hydrogen-powered fuel cell cars. And then there's this tidbit. China's quantum computer beats Google's sycamore in computational supremacy, claims new study. Study. Now, he says, this is also a bit overdone. My grasp of quantum, of quantum computing equals that of a hard-boiled egg, but this seems to indicate that China is holding its own in a field that is a very big deal. Then there's another headline. China finishes building world's largest radio telescope. 
They've just finished building the 500-meter Aperture Spherical Telescope. Acronym is FAST, the world's largest single aperture telescope. And there's a photo taken July 3, 2016, the day the huge dish's last panel was installed. Great big sucker. Four years ago, and China has money to spend on pure science. Wow. Also, the next-generation Chinese medium-low-speed maglev, that's uh, magnetic levitating trains, doubles the top speed of the first generation, and it becomes driverless. Most of the R&D work is done in the Hunan province. Miles of high-speed rail in the U.S., zero. Miles of maglev rail in the U.S., zero. Likelihood of either anytime too soon, zero. Cost of a new B-21 intercontinental nuclear bomber, $550 million each. Just a couple more quick ones here. Uh, China will begin constructing its space station this year. China will be building 30 fully connected 5G factories by 2023. And the Chinese-developed hydrogen fuel cell hybrid locomotive has rolled off the assembly line. Just going to see if there was anything more here. There's a lot to this article. But uh, the bottom line is, if you are keeping track of what's happening in China, you would say, wow, they have, they have come a long ways. I don't know if you, if you still think, uh, oh, yes, they're all riding around on bicycles and, you know, wearing those, uh, you know, strange wedge-shaped hats. Nope. Nope. China is, is definitely a player. And interestingly enough, uh, I, I get, this is one of the, the fascinating things. Uh, Yangtze Memory Technology Company, YMTC, has developed an advanced 192-layer dual-wafer NAND or flash chip using Chinese technology. Now, if you didn't know, flash memory is used in huge quantities in everything from smartphones to french fries. Okay, maybe not french fries, but he says there's some doubt as to whether the company will be able to produce in volume, but it is building a second fabrication line, so it must think it can. If it does, American companies, most notably Micron, will lose the very large Chinese market for flash. And then the Chinese, nothing if not commercial, will probably flood the world market with discount flash. So there could be some interesting uh, technological as well as economic fallout from that one. Like I say, the purpose of this article isn't to, to generate your fears or make you hate the Chinese. It's just to point out that uh, this is something the American media really isn't talking about. I wonder why. Uh, probably because we're concerned with getting those Dr. Seuss books out of the library. You know, not to poison young minds. This is The Brian Hyde Show.